Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to a brand new week on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I have to say, I don't think I could possibly ask for a better panel to start this week off. So um, it was a big weekend for politics in Georgia. As many of you out there know, the state Republican Party um, met in their convention in Columbus. There's a lot of threads that we can follow on that story, and we'll do at least some of them on the show today. Um, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court decision on the Alabama redistricting case has potential implications here in the state of Georgia because the Supreme Court, as a surprise to many people, um, said that Alabama, in fact, did disenfranchise black voters in the way they drew their maps. That could have an impact on a case that is pending in Georgia f- over the same uh, issue. So we'll talk a bit about that as well and more. So let me get right to introducing the panel today, starting with my Monday partner on the show, Patricia Murphy, political reporter and columnist. She writes the Political Insider column for the AJC and oversees the jolt every day at AJC.com. Hi, Patricia. You were in Columbus this weekend, so it'll be interesting to hear your thoughts. I was in Columbus this weekend, unlike some statewide Republicans, um, and it, I had a lot of takeaways from this weekend, some that were unexpected, so we'll talk about it. Oh, yeah, that'll be great. I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Um, um, uh, let me also introduce um, State Rep, uh, state Senator Sonia Halpern, Democrat uh, from Atlanta. Uh, Sonia, thank you so much for being back with us today. We haven't seen you for a while because... Uh, the session gets in the way of our show, for goodness sake. It does, sadly, <laughs> but I am so glad to be with you today. Um, we're also joined by the majority leader in the um, state house, Representative Chuck Evstration. Chuck, we haven't seen you since this session, and so it's belated, but congratulations. You have stepped into a major position of leadership in the party, and it's really good to have you back as well. Well, thank you so much, Bill. It's uh, great to be back with you today, and I'm very honored to have this uh, position of responsibility at the state capitol. Certainly was a busy legislative session and look forward to uh, to our discussion. And we should point out that you were one of the Republicans who, for whatever reason, you can share with us if you want to later in the show, did not uh, end up in Columbus for the convention. You were not there, right? I wasn't able to make it. That's right. We'll talk about that, I'm sure. <laughs> okay. And Anthony Michael Christ, professor of law at Georgia State University, is back with us as well. Anthony, I'm really happy to have you here. You're able to talk about all these topics, but I'm really interested when we get to talking about the uh, SCOTUS decision on the Alabama redistricting case. So thank you for being here. Uh, good morning, Bill. It's, it's good to be here as always. Um, thank you. All right, Patricia, I, if you don't mind, um, in a minute, I do want to hear you, you um, just share with us your overall thought about the convention. But I do think that there's no way to avoid starting with the fact that Donald Trump 
made his first public speech in Columbus on Saturday since being uh, indicted by the feds. And uh, so I'd like to play just a little bit of what Donald Trump told the people, the delegates who were in Columbus. We'll talk about that and then talk about a lot more around the convention. So here's Trump. The ridiculous and baseless indictment of me by the Biden administration's weaponized Department of Injustice will go down as among the most horrific abuses of power in the history of our country. Many people have said that. Democrats have even said it. This vicious persecution is a travesty of justice. You're watching Joe Biden. Joe, I think of it. Biden is trying to jail his leading political opponent, an opponent that's beating him by a lot in the polls, just like they do in Stalinist Russia or communist China. No different. So, Patricia, uh, why don't we start there? This was the first opportunity we had, uh, although he'd been putting stuff on Truth Social, uh, to really hear how Trump is going to frame the prosecution against him. Uh, talk a, a little about that and this long 90-minute speech that he gave. Yeah, so his comments about the most recent indictments against him, which are incredibly serious and um, even spin out of the Espionage Act, um, were the exact same defenses we've heard him give for any other criticisms of him, um, any shortcomings of his own, any failures of his own, that it's um, people are out to get him. He uh, ranted about, and he went on and on, witch hunt, went, witch hunt, scam hoax. Everything is witch hunt, witch hunt, hunt scam hoax. Um, he called District Attorney Fannie Willis a Marxist, uh, said that uh, that prosecution as well is a um, an attempt to uh, interfere with his election. So the investigation into his potential election interference in Georgia is, in his mind, a huge plot to interfere with his own election. That is nonsense, obviously. Um, but he, uh, in a way that is just, it's just not like anything you've ever seen from any member of any group, any private citizen, any public citizen, verbally attacking, insulting the prosecutor's um, behind these cases. I am certain his own lawyers begged him not to say a word about any of these cases. He went on at length about the secret documents case and kept calling the documents my boxes. He was like, my, my boxes, everybody else has boxes. My boxes were perfectly safe. Everybody knows my boxes were safe. Um, talking about those secret classified documents as his own personal possessions. It was really shocking to which i can't believe i could say that about something that donald trump has said but it was just shocking my biggest surprise coming out of that was that there were delegates who were really offended by his comments and um mm -hmm. were not on board and said i don't know if i'm a republican anymore um now obviously there were a number of people who gave him a standing ovation but it wasn't that thunderous applause that he has gotten in the past that i've seen in 2015, 2016, 2018, just so loud you could barely hear yourself think. This was a standing ovation, empty seats in the back, um, and some Republicans walking out and being like, I am disgusted. Um, Patricia, we, what's interesting about that observation 
is we know that many of those who consider themselves sort of non-MAGA, if that's an expression I can use, chose not to go to the convention at all. And yet you say there were those in the room who, who said, yes, we're still Republicans, we want to be at this convention, but perhaps were turned off by what they heard. And as you just said, maybe a little bit more skeptical about what their participation in the party can be moving forward. Yeah, where they're there because they're delegates, they're fighting for their party. They were brought into the party by Ronald Reagan, um, brought in by uh, volunteering for George H.W. Bush or George W. Bush, um, even some younger Republicans. And listen, there, there was not a mass walkout. I want to make that clear. And we talked to um, a number of people who said, well, the election was stolen. Why is that? It's not illegal to say the election was stolen. Um it could be in some cases, but that wasn't part of our conversations with people. So, but there's just a very clear divide. There also was a theme from the podium that this party is not divided. That is a hoax by the fake news media. We are not divided. Um, but when you have a party meeting at Columbus and you have the strongest Republican in the state, who is Brian Kemp, nowhere near the party's convention, um, that is a divide by any definition. Uh, before I bring in um, uh, Sonia and Chuck, Anthony, let me just uh, get a clarification from you. On the Sunday shows yesterday, I did hear any number of Republicans uh, particularly, but, but some other analysts who suggested that the espionage charge is a little troubling to many people because when they think of espionage, they immediately think spying. And no one is accusing Donald Trump of being a spy, and yet the espionage charge is there. Yeah, there, there's a somewhat of a disconnect between the title of the law and the content of the law and the, the kind of conduct it prescribes. So mishandling of, of sensitive national security materials and things of that nature, as alleged in the indictments here in, in Southern Florida, um, those would count as violations if proven under the Espionage Act, even though there's no allegations that the former president was attempting to sell the information or show it to adversaries or, or anything like that. So, so yeah, there is there's somewhat of a it's somewhat of a misnomer, um, and of course, it's a very old law, it dates back to World War One. So, uh, the, the the verbiage is is a little bit different than what it actually covers. And in fact, I, that's exactly what I heard from some of the defenders of Trump. This is an old law. This is back to uh, pre-World War I days, and it really has no application here, but we'll watch how that moves forward. Uh, Chuck Efstration, um, it, it, I, we can talk about Trump for a couple of minutes, but I, I'd like to ask you to what extent you think when he gives a speech like that and stands in such strong defiance and, and attacks so, I think, viciously is, a, is not an unfair word. To what extent does he do, does he help or damage the Republican brand in Georgia? Well, first of all, I want to congratulate the new leadership of the Georgia Republican Party. So the newly elected chairman, Josh McCoon, has previous experience as a state senator. He also uh, ran statewide and brings that perspective to uh, to his new position. I think the first job of any party chairman is to 
work to unite the party so that uh, there's an effective political organization for the upcoming election next year. I previously served as a local Republican Party chairman myself, and you have many different perspectives in your party, but you need everyone to work in the same direction uh, when it's when it's election time. I think that the uh, perception that I've heard about and I've seen covered in the media is that both the New York indictment and this federal indictment, uh, there's a question as to political motivation and that regardless of how you feel about Donald Trump, it's not a good thing when uh, folks question whether a, a prosecution is politically motivated. I'm a former felony prosecutor myself. I mean, the last thing you want is uh, is this uh, is this perception that political opponents are the targets of investigation and prosecution, particularly when there has been coverage of other former office holders retaining documents. The you know to bring up again the Hillary Clinton email uh, uh, discussion from years ago, and uh, circumstances did that did not result in an indictment. Um, to to now have former President Trump under indictment, I think in some ways his speech really highlighted that question that some have, which is when there's uh, the potential for political motivation but behind prosecution. We have a we have a real problem and that that needs to be addressed. Chuck, if a prosecutor uh, follows what she or he believes are the facts of a case, regardless of whether or not the uh, target of the investigation is a former president, a candidate for office again, when they're following the facts of the case and come to the conclusion that violations, serious violations of law uh occurred. Um, is that a political prosecution? So no one is above the law in the United States. The law has to be followed. But I think that the uh, the question is, where is the independent prosecutor in the investigation of other elected, former elected officials who retain documents? And um, And I think that that discussion, more of a comprehensive conversation needs to occur because it's a it is an issue if voters uh, question that. And uh, and as I said earlier, these are individuals who may not support Donald Trump, but are concerned that there is a uh, political aspect, it feels a political motivation to these indictments. Um, Sonia, just to pick up on what Chuck Efstration is saying, the ABC News Ipsos poll, which came out this weekend, said that some 48% of voters do believe that the charges against Donald Trump are legitimate and need to be prosecuted. But almost the same percentage of voters said they do believe the charges are politically motivated. Sonia? Yeah, I mean, that that's the challenge because we are definitely at a moment in time where there is that lack of trust in what is happening in the political spaces and i think that that those statistics that polling helps to show that that's the that's the challenge people can believe that he did something wrong and at the same time believe that the reason why he's gotten those indictments is also for the wrong reason. We don't have enough right things in people's kind of larger perception happening in our political spaces to give them confidence. 
Anthony? Well, I, I think it's a, it's important to highlight a few things here, and particularly uh, the controversy from the New York Chargers versus the ones that are coming out of the Southern District of Florida. Um, part of the reason why so many people question the indictment out of New York is because it was about conduct that happened before Trump was president. And so there was there is some kind of plausible argument that those charges would not have come about, but for Donald Trump being president of the United States and being such a polarizing figure. And so I think that that's one kind of silo that we could put cases in. The indictment here, however, a couple of things are important. One is that this is a special counsel, which has in political independence from the rest of the Department of Justice. And so that investigation was happening without the influence of the, the White House or the, the upper echelons of the Department of Justice. That's important. And I think there's also another factor here that's extremely important in terms of deciding whether to prosecute or not, because we've had similar cases before, but there's one ongoing with the, with the president of the United States. There, there was one with the vice president, uh, Pence. There was one with uh, former attorney general uh, Alberto Gonzalez. And, and so far, right, none of those ever had um, prosecutions pursued precisely because when those documents were found, they were turned over, they were reported, and cooperation uh, was kind of the, the most important thing um, in terms of making sure that all the national security information that was discovered was secured and returned. Here, we have a lot of evidence to suggest that this evidence or that these materials were knowingly possessed, that he that the former president bragged about having it. We have tapes in which the former president um, right has the sensitive security information and is bragging about it. Um, in fact, the, the artist Kid Rock was in a Rolling Stone article not too long ago uh, discussing how Trump had like this map. And so you can't come too close because it's a, it's national security uh, sensitive information. Um, right now, there's a, there's an obstinance there that I think a lot of prosecutors would take umbrage with and would pursue uh, a prosecution for because, in fact, there wasn't there wasn't cooperation. And in fact, there's also evidence that uh, Donald Trump lied uh, in in, uh, you know, testimony given or, or oaths provided um, to the grand jury and to the Department of Justice. So I, I think that we can have these discussions about you know, partisan motivations and, and, and when prosecutions are appropriate and what kind of prosecutorial discretion is necessary in these political sensitive dynamics. But at the end of the day, I, I think we also have to recognize that there are apples and oranges in these prior cases versus what we have in the Southern District of Florida. Patricia, jump in. So I think a big part of the reason that um, Republicans in particular feel that this is politically motivated um, is because Donald Trump is saying it's politically motivated and saying it's a hoax and a witch hunt um, that he uh, is being persecuted, uses the word persecuted. Most public officials or public figures <laughs> would say, I take these charges seriously. I look forward to proving my innocence or just something kind of innocuous. It's just, but he has such a loud megaphone. And, um, and I think of course, because of the nature of our politics, Republicans generally do not trust Democrats. Republicans, gen Democrats Repu generally do not trust Republicans at this point. Um, the trust and faith in our judicial system, I think is um, under critical assault as well. Um, so it is, but, it, but it is, very true that just like our election systems, if we don't have faith and confidence in our judicial system, it really breaks down at a certain point. Um, and so uh, it, it feels also very, it feels kind of dangerous 
not to go forward? Do you not prosecute and investigate somebody just because they're a high level political figure, but then at the same time, do you insist on going forward with a prosecution if you know that it will inflame an already inflamed political system? I don't know the answer to that, but it's it feels like a really tough space for us to be in right now. Chuck, um, let let me turn. You you congratulated Josh McCoon on being elected uh, chair of the party, taking over from David Schaefer, who many many people, and I think it's fair to say that includes Governor Kemp. Uh, Chris Carr, the attorney general, Brad Raffensperger, and other high-ranking Republicans believe uh, had put the party in very precarious position by being such a MAGA-oriented leader of the party. So now Josh McCoon steps in. And what I find ironic about Josh McCoon's, uh, who Josh McCoon is today, is there was a time some years ago when he was a member of the state senate when many people thought of Josh McCoon about as being as far right as a Republican could get. And yet now, um, McCoon did put together, I think I'm right about this, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, he was able to win by putting together, to some extent, a coalition of delegates, some of whom were the far right delegates, and others who were the more mainstream Republicans. And now the question becomes, how do you start healing a party that is so clearly splintered? And can McCoon somehow start that process? Well, I think you're right. He was able to put together uh, more conservative uh, delegates along with more uh, mainstream delegates, you may say moderate delegates, uh, to really develop a coalition, Mm -hmm. which I think is an important skill for a leader in party politics to be able to do. You know, as we go through the presidential primary where uh, many different Republicans will be supporting different candidates, um, which is, you know, great. You know, we need to have that discussion within the party and put forward the best possible candidate to defeat Joe Biden next year. But uh, but after that presidential primary ends, you really need someone who's ready to unite the party to get to work. And the party um, party responsibilities for a chairman are actually relatively uh, straightforward when you think about it. It's fundraising so that there are the resources to get the message out, ensuring that volunteers are ready to get to work, and a messaging ability to deliver the, uh, the objectives of the Republican Party to the voters next year. And I would submit that Josh McCoon's experience as a uh, state senator for many years and as a former a candidate for statewide office, he really has that kind of experience on the ground. So I think that uh, both the uh, observations that we have from the convention this past weekend, as well as uh, his track record, has put him in a great position to lead the party going forward. Sonia, I know you're on the other side of the aisle, uh, but I'm going to ask you to think about how, how what your you um, what your thoughts are about what's happening to the Republican Party in Georgia. Because let's face it, um, McCoon may not be the hard right activist that Schaefer was, but a number of the officials who were elected over the weekend are extreme MAGA uh, supporters. Um, The first vice chair, Brian Pritchard, who's claimed this election was stolen in 2020, (laughs) even though he faced charges of voting illegally nine times while serving a felony sentence. 
it, it would be a mistake. I, I don't envy what Chuck F. Strachan and his fellow Republicans who really f- do want to heal their party uh, are facing because the MAGA forces are still there, Sonia. I think for us as Democrats, um, what we know is is the MAGA Republican kind of rhetoric and uh, messaging altogether is very animating for Democrats. So for us, I think that um, you know we've had the ability to get some very strong wins mm. under our belt in this state. In- in recent years. I do believe that um, that is driven by candidates and quality of candidates, but also by generally what's been happening in the Republican Party. So it's an opportunity, frankly, for us to double down and really make sure that we've got our grassroots organizing together and that we are doing our own messaging and making sure that we're able to turn out voters again in this next upcoming election. I think it's a, a big opportunity for us as Democrats. There is differences within the Republican Party, and we would be silly if we do not uh, exploit those to our benefit. Anthony, before we move on, and, and we do have to take a break in a minute, a couple things that I'd like to address with you. Number one, it's interesting that in this ABC News uh, Ipsos poll, um, uh, something like almost a plurality and close to a majority of independent voters said they believe the charges against Trump are correct. And I don't know what percentage of those independent voters are actually swing voters. Um, many of them may be, some may not be. But it is. I think if I were a Republican running in 2024, I'd be a little concerned that uh, such a high percentage of People who don't identify with either party uh, think that Trump was uh, justly charged. Well, there's certainly a difference between the right, the average Republican primary voter and some of these independent voters and and, and some of these other swing voters, uh, particularly the kinds of voters that are going to be so important in Georgia. Right. When we think about folks who live in you know, northern Fulton County and, and um, you know, some of these other swingier areas of, of the state. Um, so there is there is a disconnect. And I think it'll be very interesting to see how the rhetoric plays out. But I also think that the issue here is at the end of the day, these probably these issues won't be settled because there won't be a trial probably until well into 2025 at some point, um, because there's just not the time to, to have a trial in the middle of the political uh, season. And given the, the time constraints of the New York trial as well, um, it's going to drag out for a while. So it's it's really going to be a, a, a battle of rhetoric as opposed to a battle of facts, I think, for quite some time. Okay. Um, thank you for the conversation to start us off today. We've got to get to our first break. Back with more in a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. House Majority Leader Chuck F. Strachan, State Senator Sonia Halpern, Anthony Michael Christ, Professor of Law at Georgia State University, and Patricia Murphy, 
on today's show. Patricia, before we leave the Republican convention, there was an example of what some observers are worried about as a weekend unfolded, that there are Republicans who are suggesting protests that could possibly be violent in nature. Here's Carrie Lake, the failed Republican candidate for governor in Arizona, one of the strongest MAGA people out there. Here's what she said in that with that with that in mind. I have a message tonight for Merrick Garland and Jack Smith and Joe Biden. And the guys back there in the fake news media, you should listen up as well. This one's for you. If you want to get to President Trump, you're going to have to go through me, and you're going to have to go through 75 million Americans just like me. And I'm going to tell you, yep, most of us are card-carrying members of the NRA. That's not a threat. That's a public service announcement. So, Patricia, you were one of those fake journalists in the back of the hall in Columbus when Carrie Lake gave her speech Friday night. Um, She got a big, big round of applause when she made those comments. You know, I think it was more that they were applauding at her turn of phrase. It's not a threat. It's a public service announcement. I mean, it's a clever phrase. The underlying threat is totally irresponsible. Um, But Bill, I was sitting with a table of delegates who, when we sat down, they're like, oh, great. Hey, great to see you. You know, that is just not, that is not (laughs) the instinct of most of the delegates there to threaten a reporter by showing them your NRA certificate. That is just um, ridiculous. Carrie Lake is trying to be relevant and trying to get quoted in national newspapers. And she did get some applause. But again, it was I was expecting Carrie Lake was going to blow, so to speak, blow the roof off that place with how much people were going to love her. That just was not the case. She got, you know, she got a standing ovation. Some, the most conservative, and conservative is not the right word, the most kind of farthest to the right, um, most energized, aggressive delegates loved it. But some people walked out of there and like, what was that? The next morning, Asa Hutchinson, who's just a very traditional Republican conservative, um, gave a very positive speech. And the people, the delegates at the table where I sat, they're like, well, that was better than Carrie Lake. You know, there's just this effort to appeal to the worst instincts in some leaders of the Republican Party um, that is just not universally shared. And honestly, the fact that Chuck F. has become the House Majority Leader is really relevant because Republicans in the state are very strong if you can take Donald Trump out of the equation, who seems to lose all their statewide elections for them. But they just, <laughs> just swept the board in the other statewide elections Republicans did. So Trump is a huge problem for Republicans right now because he's not universally loved, even within his own party. Chuck, I I want to second something that Patricia just said. I spent 20 years covering the Georgia General Assembly. I haven't been down there covering it as a journalist anymore. I watch it from a distance. But I think it's really important that listeners understand what uh, Patricia just said. We have always, as journalists, um, been able to forge very positive 
trusting, to some extent, relationships with people on both sides of the aisle. And even some of the more extreme voices on either side of the aisle who want to demonize us for their own purposes when you're in private settings get along pretty darn well. Well, that's right. I think that obviously an independent uh, media and journalists who are able to cover uh, news uh, effectively and independently is critical to our democracy. I think that um, what what is important to maybe know and give some context, I was returning from a, a panel engagement as a legislator where I had to speak and I wasn't able to be there Saturday. But many, I was getting texts from many of my colleagues and friends who were there saying that they wanted to vote on the elections. They were kind of waiting to get through all the speeches so that they could vote for the uh, elected leadership of the party, which was uh, later in the agenda. And, you know, often when you have these big events, you have all kinds of folks from all over the state there. And as Patricia was saying, sometimes folks are leaving the hall or it's it's not always an accurate reflection of the the current state of the mindset of of republicans and i think what she was talking about with her personal interaction with republican delegates is is uh, very helpful to know we we have a strong party in the sense that there are members who are excited about the presidential election next year. They are ready to get to work for their candidate. And I believe after the presidential primary is over, the Republican Party will come together well in in Georgia, united to uh, defeat Joe Biden at the polls next November. Sonia, um, I I think that Chuck Hefstration is hopeful and optimistic about it. But when you have Brian Kemp, saying, I'm not even going to the convention, I'm raising money in my leadership fund completely separate from them. The hope that somehow Josh McCoon can bring that party together um, may be a little more optimistic than uh, we're going to see. And it's going to be interesting, if Donald Trump is the nominee of the party, what happens to Brian Kemp? Yeah, I mean, I think interesting kind of tangential story line happening in the background here is this notion about these leadership committees. <laughs> and so when that bill was passed and signed into law a couple of years ago, ironically, it was Democrats who really voted largely against it. And that is, in fact, um, the avenue by which Governor Kemp is really able to craft his own way outside of the Republican Party. So it's 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 a fascinating turn of events as it relates to that. Um, and then we'll see. I mean, I think that obviously for Republicans, the hope is always going to be that they're going to pull it together and align. Um, and generally speaking, I think historically that's what we've seen. But it's going to be very interesting when the number one Republican in the state is is seems to be treading a different path. We shall Patricia, see what happens. I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Sonia. Patricia, if you're Josh McCoon, is the first phone call you might have wanted to make after winning election to the governor of Georgia? I would sure think so. I, you know, that's a great question. We should ask him who's the first person he called, probably his wife, but she was actually there. Um, uh, yeah, the party is damaged by not by being 
kind of sidelined largely by the governor who just doesn't need the aggravation and has his own way to raise money. So yes, they should be united. They're not always, but it's very helpful. And McCoon promised to unite the party. We'll see if he can do it. All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way now, because when we come back, Anthony Michael Christ, I want to put you in the spotlight to help us understand this Alabama ruling on redistricting and how it could affect Georgia down the line. We'll be right back. A quick personal note, um, all of you listen to the show regularly know that along with politics, the great love of my life is uh, theater. And uh, I just want to give a shout out to our good friend, Kenny Leon, the Broadway director who still makes his home uh, in Atlanta. Um, Janice and I were in New York uh, with Kenny over the weekend, right before the Tony Awards. Kenny show top dog underdog written by susan laurie parks which 20 years ago when it first appeared on on broadway won a pulitzer prize but never won a tony in the production that kenny directed this year um it was uh, uh voted by the uh uh voters of the tony awards the best revival of a play and we're just completely thrilled for kenny leon and all of you who know him from the alliance theater days i hope feel the same about what he did coming out of our theater. And by the way, he's now directing a production of Hamlet for Shakespeare in the Park. If you get to New York, it's really a wonderful production. So thank you for letting me give our friend Kenny a quick shout out. All right, Anthony, start us off. And we'll, the only person we're not going to bring into this next conversation is Chuck F. Stration, who is majority leader uh, of the House, uh, has to be careful because the impact of that Alabama decision could be important in terms of Georgia's district line. So, Anthony, I'll s say it in the broadest way. The Supreme Court, five to four, voted that, in fact, Alabama's congressional lines were drawn in such a way that it disenfranchised a number of black voters. There should have been one more congressional seat for black voters. You can tell us more about that. Yeah, so I think the way the best start off this conversation is to talk about the case law and the tests that the courts have to apply in these Voting Rights Act challenges to redistricting. So there was a major landmark case called Gingles, and there was a three-part test that came out of that, that decision, which courts applied to determine whether or not uh, a state has improperly diluted the voting strength of a racial or language minority group. So if a plaintiff can show that in a redistricting process, a state drew lines in such a way that uh, it, it could have, but chose not to, uh, create an additional majority-minority uh, congressional district of, uh, you know, of that that's compact. So, in other words, right, that there's a large a number of of racial or language minority voters who could have been their own district, if they can show that. If they can also show that that group votes in a kind of politically cohesive way, and if they also show that the way the districts are drawn 
that those uh, that that political or that racial or language minority group can't uh, vote or get their candidates of, of choice elected, um, that there's really a substantial case to be made under the Voting Rights Act that the rights of those voters have been violated. And then there are other uh, there are other you know analyses that have to be done kind of in the totality, totality of the circumstances uh, to show whether or not the state discriminated against those voters. Now, in Alabama, they the, the plaintiffs show that they could have drawn in Alabama a second district. Uh, comprised of a majority of black voters, but they chose not to, and the Supreme Court upheld that dis- that decision in the district court. Now, why is that important for Georgia? Well, ultimately, there is an argument to be made, and the district court found this to be true, that there is a sufficient number of black voters of majority voting age um, who live in the western part of, of Atlanta and west of Atlanta, and they could be their own district. And they were not uh, made into their own district in large part because uh, the General Assembly divided Cobb County up into four different districts and and split the vote. So we will have to go to a a full-blown trial in September uh, to determine whether or not those other factors are present um, in order for the plaintiffs to make their case. But at the end of the day, the Supreme Court in the United States, I think, made made it very clear that the Voting Rights Act still very much has these these claims that are viable. Um, And I think that we will very much, or it's very likely that we'll see a redrawing of the districts here in Georgia consistent with the decision that came out of Alabama. Sonia, um, one of the this was a surprising decision to a great many people who have been concerned, those who are concerned about it, that the Supreme Court has been chipping away at the Voting Rights Act for a number of years in, in any number of decisions. And I think there were many people who were surprised that uh, Brett Kavanaugh, uh, a Trump appointee, uh, came along with the majority and voted that, yes, indeed, uh, uh, Alabama discriminated against black voters. Yeah, I think uh, the important outcome of that decision really is that it gives us some assurance that the voting rights protections are holding strong, especially after that we've seen, as you said, uh, over the last decade or so, some other decisions that um, have kind of neutered the law. So I think that is the great news. I mean, and I think that it's important that a Justice Brett Kavanaugh you know, aligned with the majority on that vote, Um, kind of going back to the conversation we were just having about a lack of trust in our systems, including our judicial system. I think that this can at least give us um, some some line of sight that our justices are going to make decisions based on the case in front of them. And even where we might expect based on what we think are partisan reasons, we're not always going to see the outcome we see. I think that is an important outcome of the decision last week. Yeah, Bill, I spoke with Democrats after uh, that decision um, who were uh, shocked by what they heard. Uh, Obviously, they were very hopeful of what they heard, and they were starting to have conversations amongst themselves. These are Democrats in Washington not the members, but they're sort of like some uh, democratic people in Washington starting to talk about um, what Georgia lines should look like and how many Democrats would that yield if there were a decision in Democrats' favor here in Georgia. Now, uh, going into redistricting in 2021, um, the split in the Georgia delegation was six Democrats to eight Republicans. That went to five to nine, after, particularly after the sixth district was redrawn to become more Republican 
which made the seventh district more democratic and sent Lucy McBath over to challenge uh, Carolyn Bordeaux over in the seventh district. Um, Democrats were saying they see a scenario where it could be seven to seven um, based on the ruling and based on the changes in uh, Georgia's demographics. I have no idea if that's accurate, but that's what they're thinking. Obviously, there are a lot of step, a lot of steps between now and then, including elections. Um, but that's how they're interpreting this decision. Anthony, where does this Georgia case stand right now? I'm I'm not quite clear on it. So what happened was uh, the the district court, and this is a three judge panel district court, um, essentially said that given the Alabama case, um, that they were going to hold any kind of injunctive relief off um, because of also the timing of, of things, uh, but that they would continue the discovery process and set a trial date for, I, th I think it's late September. Um, so so the, the the action has been continuing. Um, and, and so we'll, we'll see some progress on that in the, in the coming weeks and months. Um, I would like to point out, though, I, I think that this idea that Democrats think they're going to have a seven to seven uh, playing field is is delightful wish casting on their part. Um, I, I think <laughs> I think what you'll see is a perhaps a more competitive district drawn out of northern Fulton, northern Cobb, with some of perhaps Cherokee County or Forsyth, a little bit of, of Forsyth drawn into it. Um, and so I, I think you might go back to that that maybe six uh, member high watermark that they had uh, a couple of years ago. But but, um, you know, the idea that parity is coming to Georgia, um, you know, I, I think that that's that's probably a little too too wishful thinking on their part. One other quick note on this, Patricia, when when Anthony says, you know, maybe they could see some changes in the lines up there in North Georgia coming down into Cobb County. There certainly are any number of voters in Cobb County who would love to see the 14th district lines changed so that they're not going to continue to be represented by Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah, the Cobb County uh, voters have, have not been real pleased with the redrawing of the lines, although she did have her most recent um, town hall in Cobb County. So she's a yeah. very strategic thinker up there in the 14th district, I have to say. Um, but we have heard from many Democrats in the in Cobb County who cannot believe that Marjorie Taylor Greene is their representative. Yeah. Chuck, I, I know you're not going to, you can't talk about the Georgia's case specifically. So let me ask you a broader couple of questions about the Supreme Court. And, and, and two of them, really. Number one, um, Brett Kavanaugh has on a couple of occasions now sided with the more liberal justices on the court. This is a good example of that, I think. And and there is, I think, there's no question he's still a very conservative justice. I mean, he voted to overturn Roe. At the same time, he's sort of an example of the fact that presidents can never be completely certain of what they're getting, even though they think they know when they make a nomination for the Supreme Court. That's one thing I'd love for you to comment on. Um, the other well, is this. Go ahead. We'll talk about that first. Well, as an attorney, I'm obviously very interested in the Supreme Court and the work that justices do. And, um, and it is often, I think, uh, fascinating with where justices will come down and the coalition that's built on a whole variety of different issues. And so there are uh, cases that 
are very public, you know, opinions are very well known and there appears to be a divide. But when you dig in, and I'm sure the professor can talk about this, but when you dig into certain cases, you will see uh, what, what would maybe be a surprising coalition on other issues that comes up. And I think that uh, just as an American, I'm, I'm always so proud to see that uh, that that we have that from our Supreme Court. And uh, and not only that, just very well-written dissents when there's disagreement. There's a very thoughtful approach that's given that justices are willing to share. So uh, so yes, I, as uh, as a lawyer and a, and a political nerd, I, I, I do think it's fascinating to watch. That said, Anthony, the buzz among some court watchers is that perhaps Chief Justice Roberts um, joined the majority because they know where the court is headed on the affirmative action in colleges case. And they know it's going to go. I mean, this is just the theory that they know the court is going to rule against using race as a criteria for admissions. And so they're looking for a way to ameliorate what could be very, very controversial down the road. Yeah, I think there's two very important things about Supreme Court decision making that we we have to think about here. One is that personalities do get in the way sometimes and and do fashion jurisprudence uh, perhaps more than we would like to think. And and two, uh, sometimes horse trading happens in the background. Um, so this decision, I think you saw a lot of emphasis placed on precedent and the value story decisis in ways that was. You know, much more pointed in terms of how Justice Roberts uh, dropped some pretty nasty footnotes towards Justice Thomas, um, and I and I think there might be some you know post row post uh, Dobbs uh, you know kind of bitterness there and some of the the institutional hits the court has taken, which is unusual for Justice Chief Justice Roberts. And I think that you are correct that the, we're all waiting for the other shoes to drop. We've got major cases on um, affirmative action. There's the independent state legislature doctrine. There's also, of course. Uh, a case about uh, anti-LGBTQ uh, free speech rights, uh, right? So there's a lot more potent, salient cases that are going to come down the pipeline this week and next week, and maybe the week thereafter. Um, so this is just part of that, lo that longer arc, and we'll have to see how it all plays out. Sonia, the case that uh, we referred to on affirmative action, it's, uh, it's a case that involves the University of North Carolina and Harvard, um, who are being challenged for using racial, uh, for, for allowing race to be a factor in determining who should and shouldn't be admitted to the university. It's going to be one of the most important cases the court takes, uh, it, uh, gives us a ruling on. It's already heard the case, and all the indications are they're going to shut down racial affirmative action in the university. Yeah, which, I mean, I'll just say for me personally is disappointing. Um, I think that the reason why we had to use race as a barometer and factor in any case in admissions is because of the long history of exclu excluding African-Americans to our educational systems in our, in our universities. And I don't think that we've yet gotten really where we need to go um, as a country, frankly, um, as it relates to our race relations and opportunity. So I, I, I will be keeping an eye open for that and what it's going to ultimately mean 
for African-American students. And I, I would also like to say it's, it's interesting because we will see cases that target these kinds of things. And yet at the same time, um, we don't look at things like legacy admission. Sonia Helper, and you get the last word. We'll be watching. It's June 12th. We're going to see these cases drop in the weeks ahead. Thank you, Sonia. Thank you, Anthony Michael Christ, Patricia Murphy, and Majority Leader Chuck F. Strachan for uh, today's show. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow, and that's when we'll talk about these proposals in the Republican uh, platform for next year. It's pretty extraordinary. I'm Bill Nygut. See you again for another show tomorrow. In the meantime, take care. Stay healthy and please be good to one another. Bye, everybody.